from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 167 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well, thank you. I've been posting sort of day by day photos of uh, my new greenhouse that's going to go up. Yeah, soon. I saw. I, I think I saw at least one of the photos. So. Yeah, I have to. I have to put up day twos. Um, and when we're done recording here, <laughs> <laughs> so they just cleared out two more um, of the old garden raised garden beds. And then I think construction starts tomorrow. How fun. So, so I'm very excited about that. So, of course, gosh, so much Disney news this week. Mm-hmm. So, some of it nice, some of it not so nice. And, you know, our hearts, we were talking before the show, certainly our hearts go out to all the cast members who are getting those calls that we all dread in our jobs. I've certainly been the recipient of a call or two like that in my day. And, um, we just, you know, I I guess trying to be the optimist, I always say that, you know, things happen for a reason and you, you know, it means that there's something better Mm. out there waiting for you. So you just have to, uh, be open to opportunities and look for them. And you may end up finding something that turns out to be even better than you, uh, and, you know, than you were enjoying previously and who knows and then you never know sometimes the 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 path to our goals are a winding one and sometimes we we it goes and off in a little different direction and then it goes back onto the main path again and all of that but um still keep sight of of what your goals are and sometimes they change a little but we um just don't lose hope and don't give up because, you know, I've been in those situations because I've been on this planet a long time and it's always worked out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's taken time, but it is always worked out. But you definitely, all of us who are in the Dis- Disney community definitely are keeping you in our thoughts and in our hearts yeah. and are grateful for all the magic that you have given to us yeah. over the years. I I know just for me, you know, Disney was my dream. That was uh, that was one of the the places that I wanted to work at more than any other place. And I was hoping to get my foot in the door with the college program and hoping that that, like many other people before, led to more opportunities to to keep me in Florida and and push me forward into into a job that really uh you know was next level beyond just working in the theme parks and i i broke housing roles at the college program which led to me being released from the company and i was so bitter for so long because i i broke housing roles i in terms of the actual job i did when i worked at test track i was I, I had a lot of high praise from the people that that was were in charge of me, and I never, I never showed up late. I was great with guests, and I I was an ideal, I was an ideal cast member, but I still got let go because I broke the one rule, and it was so tough and so hard. And I, I know that I'm not trying to even compare it to what all of these people that lost their jobs just went through after being furloughed for months, some of them being called back and then getting told that they were being let go anyways. But I, at the very least, I know what it's like to, to love a company so much and, and have that dream just scratched off. But it, there really is there, there's always other opportunities 
out mm-hmm. there. And, you know, in, in my situation, I was then fortunate enough to, to, to work at Universal for a little while until I found a way to bring Disney back into my life through the Diz and, and by working alongside with Disney and by visiting Disney versus, versus, necessarily you know being in the parks and making magic for guests so it's it's one of those situations where there will there will be a a bright spot at the end down the road for anyone Mm -hmm. who who still wants to continue their path and just don't give up hope it's this will be over one day absolutely and what you've gained from your experience with disney you'll be able to bring with you to wherever you do land, and it's going to make you such an exceptional asset. Yes, to wherever you're at, because you know I've, I've talked about my my Disney career before, and I started younger than most, but I had every reason to believe it was going to last for for a few years, and we were very um, let's just say unceremoniously told that well, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And, and, you know, but I was younger and, you know, these things happen and I moved on. And then, you know, I always thought, oh, I'll come back to Disney someday. And I did briefly, but I was a teacher. And then I was brought in as a consultant for when Disney was first getting into the classroom software um, business. And I was able to be a consultant with that. And so that was fun. But what I learned from my very young experience with Disney and what I learned being a, a consultant with a, it was an arm of Imagineering at that time. And it was just, um, it, it has, it has been a part of everything I've done in my whole life, including what I'm doing now. And I think it made me a better educator, certainly a better presenter. And it definitely, um, I think it definitely made my outlook a little more positive mm-hmm. in terms of just what I learned from that experience. So, um, yeah. so and you never know. You just never know where life is going to take you. And in, in Central Florida, and I'm probably assuming Orange County out, out in California, I'm guessing they're both similar that if you necessarily have Disney on your resume, they, they might not – they might not necessarily uh, look at that as something impressive, but uh, anyone who's worked for Disney and traveled to other places in the country, lived in other places in the country, uh, know that if you have Disney on your resume, it's they take you seriously because just like you said, they know that you learned valuable lessons, whether it's mm-hmm. in guest service or just, you know, anything, anything you have something to offer jobs. So you hear about people in the Northeast who came down in the college program or lived down here for a while that move out and they're able to land jobs immediately because of a Disney on their resume. It's, it's, and you learn these, they, you learn these important and valuable uh, lessons while you're working for Disney. And it's just, sometimes it's you dealt with terrible situations like this where something like this happens and then you also can't even get away from it you might not be able to move but there there always there's always going to be a positive of having disney in your background and mm-hmm. there there are always lessons that you can take from from working at the parks or whatever arm you worked in and apply them towards the future and this will all get better one day and absolutely we'll all be better for it absolutely very well said craig so speaking of disney and other events of course the d23 expo that would have been this year you know has been moved to next year i guess on september 9th it's in the fall september 9th to the 11th well almost the fall um of 2021 (laughs) the anaheim convention center so i have to put that on my calendar but um and they must be very disappointed because normally if it had happened this year and then and then i mean and then it would have been um what it would have no it was destination it would have been 2021 yeah, that's right. And then, cause then they would have, it would have landed in the 100th anniversary year, the next one. Mm-hmm. So I think it's thrown them off a bit. It, 
absolutely did. I think they're smart. I think Mm -hmm. that planning for 2021 ultimately would have, they would have faced potentially having to move it again to 2022. So I think, I think in a long term uh, procedure, they, they definitely, they made the right decision on this one because while, while everyone, if there is a resurgence of COVID, then what the next thing we're going to look at is, okay, well, stuff like theme parks, yeah, those can re- reopen because they're mostly outdoors with the exception of some interior stuff. But there, there is no getting around the fact that conventions are a giant gathering of people in an air conditioning space where you don't really see the outside that much. And just seems like a a breeding ground for disease and i don't mean that in a heavy way it's just it's just the truth so i think moving to 2022 is a better plan than 2021 and you know now they're billing it that we're going to be looking forward to seeing what disney is coming up with to celebrate the 100th anniversary rather than making it a convention where you're celebrating the 100th anniversary so i I, i'm optimistic that it's going to be great yeah, so I wonder if that means that Destination D that got can- canceled for this year will be moved to 2021, since that's a smaller yeah. event. I'd be okay with it. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, and we're in October, so of course that means, you know, dig out all of our favorite Halloween films. I, I don't know if that's happening, this is happening in Florida. Hocus Pocus is coming back to our theaters here. Yeah, ours too. Like way, I mean, it's they need to find more ways to slap you in the face with hocus pocus, whether it's theaters or on uh, free form nine hundred times a day throughout the rest of Halloween, (laughs) or now on Disney Plus with the new watch party feature that they just added to it. It's they want to make sure you have ways to watch hocus pocus. Yeah, I was hoping they would have more Halloween fare on Disney Plus. In October, they're really pushing Return to Oz and Coco as Halloween films. Yeah, and, and kind of falling back on the fact that there's 30 episodes of Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. That oh, that I'll watch. <laughs> which I, I do watch. I I have slowed down on that because back when it was like 20 episodes, I would successfully get through all 20 episodes before Halloween, just watching in October. But with every year and a new episode being added, it's getting harder and harder to get through all of them. But yeah, they it, they could stand to use a little bit more Halloween fare, but it, they're they're doing their best with what they what they have. Yeah. There's always Mr. Boogity and Bride of Boogity. Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't think I'm the demographic for that. But this isn't Disney Plus. But you know, I downloaded the free um, Peacock mm-hmm. app mm-hmm. and on our television. And I the other day I thought, what movies do they have on this? They have all of those great Universal monster movies. Uh, the old black and white that, you know, used to be on creature features when I was a boy. I am so excited. That is what I'm watching (laughs) for Halloween. I, I, I'm glad that they're digitally available on Peacock. I, I will be honest. I own two different Blu-ray box sets with all of the monster movies. I, I, it's it's one of my favorite things ever, but I I do like the convenience of having them on Peacock, and I I want to say besides maybe Frankenstein and one other one, they're all they're all in the free version. Those I think there's just two of them that are behind the the paid version. In worst case scenario, if I want to watch those, you don't have access to them any other way. I think it's four ninety nine a month for Peacock, so mm-hmm. not necessarily breaking the bank. But if you have like Turner Classic Movies available, eventually they'll be on this Halloween yeah. season. But yeah. yeah, love me some monsters. Yeah, yeah. And just a couple of reminders. Um, give kids the world. Night of a Million Lights uh, tickets are now on sale, uh, and that runs mm-hmm. from November thirteenth through the of twenty twenty through January first, January third of 2021 and i'm sure we'll have a link in our show notes i'm very excited when i'm out there in november definitely getting tickets to see this 
Yeah. So, and the uh, ticket prices range uh, based on when it is, but uh, standard nights are $25 for adults, 15 for kids. On peak nights, it's 35 for adults and 18 for kids. And then uh, on holiday uh, nights, it is 40 for adults and 20 for kids. Okay. Well, hopefully when you're paying that 40, you get an extra big scoop of ice cream. <laughs> it's uh, the only holiday nights to say are uh Thanksgiving, uh Thanksgiving mm-hmm. night, Thursday, November 26th, then Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day and then the oh, day okay. after New Year's. And there's there's a lot more for the the peak for the $35 ones, but even then it's I mean we're talking mostly Saturdays, Sundays, Fridays. So if you're if you're able to go pretty much, uh, you know, early December in the uh, most dates in November, then you're going to get that $25 rate. Just the closer you okay. get to Christmas, they've got to kind of jack yep. up that price for the uh, kids. That's, that's normal. <laughs> yep. Yep. So anyway, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and of course, don't forget the Dis Family Reunion 2021. Again, it's it's being put on by Give Kids the World as a as a benefit for them. But you know, if we, if we are missing Destination D, this is the next best thing. That's March 25th through the 27th, uh, 2021. It's at the Contemporary Resort, and I will be at that as well. Fall goes as planned, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been talking about the Q and A show. Uh, for weeks now, I think by the time the show airs, the deadline for questions will have passed. Correct. Yes. So, so, but you know, if I haven't posted something on there saying, you know, Michael has gathered up all the questions, thank you. Um, you could probably still get in under the wire. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyway, don't forget if you're interested in being a part of the rebirth of story time with Michael, uh, send uh, shoot us, uh, me and Craig an email. And, uh, you know, the stories that are still up for grabs, if you would like to illustrate them and have us promote your art and your website, um, you know, during, during the, when we read these, uh, stories, which we are reading the original stories, mm-hmm. the original fairy tales based on Andrew Lang's, um, blue fairy tale book, which is from on the project Gutenberg site. So you can choose from Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red, the Brave and the Brave Little Tailor. This week, of course, Walt Disney World is celebrating its anniversary. So both the Magic Kingdom and Epcot opened on October first. Not on the same, not on the same years, but on the same date, on the same, you know, October first. So I thought it would be fun to circle back. And go back to the Epcot Center series that we started uh, way back. We started actually this technically in the very early days of this show. Yeah. Um, in episode four of Connecting with Walt that was titled The Master Plan, Craig and I talked about Walt Disney's original plan for Epcot and what a visit to Epcot the city as Walt envisioned it might have been like. And so if you haven't listened to episode four, I highly recommend you listen to it to learn about Walt's original plans for Epcot. In episode 75, A Dream Reimagined, we talked about how the concept of Epcot changed from a city of the future to the theme park Epcot Center. And in episodes 86, 97, and 98, we talked about the history of Spaceship Earth, which is the icon of Epcot Center. In episodes 131 and 132, we began our exploration of Future World with a look at the Universe of Energy Pavilion. And in episodes 149 and 150, we discussed the Wonders of Life Pavilion. So if you want to to catch up with this series, uh, there you go. There's all the episodes you want to look for. In this episode, we are beginning our look at the past, present, and future through the Horizons Pavilion. This is arguably the most beloved of past Epcot Center pavilions. And both Craig and I have been on this, not together, but we were fortunate enough to see this um, pavilion Mm -hmm. back in the day. Now, Horizons was situated in the central position of Future World East, and it encompassed all the themes of Future World, technology, transportation, communication, food, health, energy, Future habitats on the land, under sea, 
and in space. And many fans of this pavilion considered it to be the heart of Epcot Center and the one pavilion to accomplish the mission of this park's original designers, which was to emphasize the possibilities. Horizons gave us a look at where we were, where we are now, and what the possibilities for the future are. Few attractions have had the lasting impact as Horizons has had on guests and fans of the pavilion still request its return. Now, talks with General Electric about their participating in Epcot Center began as early as 1976. The company had long ties with the Walt Disney Company. Many GE executives from the days of their association with Walt Disney and the Carousel of Progress's debut at the 1964-65 World's Fair were still with the company when work began on Epcot Center, and they were eager to be a part of this unique park. GE believed that their company's interests were diverse, and they should not be limited to existing pavilion concepts such as space, the land, or the seas. So the Imagineers revived a concept that had been discussed previously, a pavilion of invention and enterprise. And this show would depict the history of inventions and how they shaped the course of history. In late 1977, Roly Crump and his design team were moved from working on the Life and Health Pavilion to this new attraction. And in later years, the show's development would be taken over by Colin Campbell and George McGuinness. Now, a year passed, and after much negotiation, a deal was proposed by which GE would continue its sponsorship of the Carousel of Progress, which was now located in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, and sponsor a new science and invention pavilion in Epcot Center. In 1979, Imagineers Colin Campbell and George McGuinness developed an Edison's Lab attraction that focused on one of the most famous American inventors in history, Thomas Edison, and early General Electric history that would feature the Carousel of Progress family. And this is very reminiscent of an idea Walt Disney had in the late 1950s, an area to be called Edison Square that was to be built just off Disneyland's Main Street, USA, roughly where the child care center is today. And Edison Square was to be a small town square that represented the 1920s, and in the center of the square would be a statue of Thomas Edison. Edison Square would have attractions, The biggest one was named Harnessing the Lightning, and it would have educated guests about electricity, its history, and its impact on the American family. And if you're thinking that this sounds very familiar to the Carousel of Progress, you'd be correct. Except that this attraction was designed to be a walkthrough type attraction. There are several theories as to why Edison Square was never built. The most popular theory is that this attraction had two requirements that Walt Disney did not have at the time, money and technology. Walt's plans finally materialized in the 1964 World's Fair when his partnership with GE created Progressland. When the fair closed, the attraction found a home in Disneyland's Tomorrowland as the Carousel of Progress, and as I mentioned a moment ago, it was later relocated to Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. However, Reginald Jones, then CEO of General Electric, rejected this idea of an Edison's Lab attraction. He believed a history-filled retrospective had been done already with the company's currently sponsored attraction, Carousel of Progress. Mr. Jones wanted an attraction that would feature the future promise of current technology, so the Carousel family was removed from the show. And it was debated whether to include Edison as a narrator. Another show was outlined entitled The Incredible Time Machine, A Journey into the Worlds of Science and Invention, which took place in a timeship theater that visited Menlo Park and other sites. This would be a new carousel theater show with a revised design that placed guests at the center of the theater with stage sets rotating around the outside. Look, and it would be looking at the history of inventors and inventions, and it would conclude with a look into the future and potential creations of science and invention. 
Now, as Marty Sklar would later say, they told us our ideas stunk. (laughs) Jones sought an experience more forward-looking and spectacular than the Carousel of Progress. In GE's words, the new show must not dwell on the past. It must be dedicated to the future. So despite the continuing guest popularity of the Carousel of Progress, Imagineers returned to the drawing board and they started working on a show that was broader in scope and began to develop a story based on yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But in the meantime, GE did go back to consider involving themselves with the Space and Seas Pavilion as well as a new version of science and invention that would incorporate an IMAX theater. John Hench and the Imagineers took elements from the Carousel of Progress for the next version of the attraction. And as a result, it came to be regarded unofficially as a sequel to the Carousel story, because this new attraction would also feature a family, but a generation older. Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald was tasked with writing the script and giving warmth and cohesion to the story as designers developed the vignettes. Through the different family members, guests would explore the wondrous worlds of 2086, in which they lived, made possible by current and future technology. The original name was given Century 3, partly because we were approaching our country's bicentennial celebration and the new millennium, and people were excited about the prospect of entering a new century, and also because the Carousel of Progress looked back in time whilst Century 3 would look forward. The 1980 pre-opening publicity for the Century 3 Pavilion stated, The Century 3 Pavilion presented by General Electric will celebrate the envisioned technological achievements of America's third century, the years of the 21st century leading to the United States tricentennial in 2076, and what these advances advances will mean to each of our lives. In the Pavilion's future port, a transportation center of a futuristic community, guests will board unique vehicles for an aerial journey to Century 3. On their flight, passengers will encounter exciting storytelling effects highlighted by three-dimensional scenes and nine-story-high film projections. The trip will begin with a salute to past dreams about future communities and lifestyles drawn from vintage science fiction films and world's fairs. Vehicles will then transport guests through spectacular 90-foot-high projected images of micro and macro worlds, frontiers of tomorrow, whose secrets will affect our futures in Century 3. Next, time travelers will pay an overview to visit to three... three-dimensional community settings and possible lifestyle habitats of tomorrow. As a finale, guests will contribute their own dreams and hopes for the future via audience polling devices to the, within the ride vehicles. Visitors to the pavilion will see the, nev- the ever-expanding opportunities and choices for tomorrow's world and the important role their decisions will play in making those visions come true in Century 3. So we can already see the, uh, you know, the roots of horizons Mm -hmm. in this concept. In October 1980, the name of the pavilion was changed from Century 3 to Future Probe. This title lasted until May 1981. GE executives were not pleased with this title, And GE representative Ned Landon said, We always thought it had a rather uncomfortable medical connotation. Several new titles were proposed, including Great Expectations. But in August or September of 1981, they settled on Horizons. As Mr. Landon said, We thought Horizons was just right. There was always a horizon out there. If you try hard enough, you can get to where it is. And when you do, you find there's still another horizon to challenge you, and another beyond that. If Horizons had a subtitle, I'd vote for an achievable future. To me, that phrase means a lot about what we're trying to do and say. 
We're not predicting a better world based on wild guesswork or imaginary science fiction. Instead, we're saying that today's technology, scientific understanding is so advanced that it gives the human race magnificent options to shape a better tomorrow, to achieve a future with greater promise for everybody. He continued by saying that the family is still going to be important in the future. The stars of our show are all members of a single family, living and working in highly diverse places, but still keeping together. We're also trying to show that the future can be friendly and that it's not something to fear. And we're trying to at least suggest that the future won't be all mapped out by someone else. We think there will be options, choices, even more opportunities than ever before to do one's own thing. The name Horizons also reflected the feeling that the attraction story would not just show what the future holds for the United States, but for the entire world. It was important that the vision of the future made sense and was believable, possible, and memorable. So experts were called in to help design the attraction. One of those experts was Princeton University physicist Gerald O'Neill, who had a hand in designing the portion of the attraction that displayed a space colony. Carl Hodges, director of the Environmental Research Lab at the University of Arizona, was asked to help design the desert portion of the attraction. Alex Taylor designed the futuristic plants and trees featured in the pavilion. In an interview, he said, Every time I designed something I thought was totally new, I would take it over to our horticulturalist and they would tell me it, it was already existed. I began to despair of ever coming up with something nature hadn't already done. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Filmmaker Eddie Garrick was put in charge of producing the Omnisphere Theater. But the equipment to photograph some of the images needed for a screen that large, like molecular molecular structures, underwater scenes, and to animate others like computer data and Landstat photos, had not yet been invented. So Garrick, who had produced television specials for National Geographic, helped design it. George Wilkins, the composer-in-residence at Walt Disney Productions and the director of music for Walt Disney Imagineering, composed the song for the pavilion, New Horizons, that was heard from the entrance hallway to the future port departure sign. After that, an instrumental version of the song continued. Now, parts of the melody could be heard in some of the background scene music throughout the pavilion. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow from Disneyland's Carousel of Progress was no longer being used in the Magic Kingdom version of the attraction in 1983. So the Imagineers use it in Horizons as a nostalgic reminder of the original Carousel of Progress. The version of the song used in Horizons is repeated several times with slight variations. What would become one of the most enjoyable parts of Horizons is the three different options guests were offered for their return to future port, either through outer space, flying over the desert, or under the sea. One of the experts called in to design these landings was David Jones. Jones is part of the special effects team that worked on Star Wars. Jones spent two years designing building and filming the models for the three different landing sequences. When Horizons opened, his desert landing film sequence was the longest continuous sequence ever filmed with miniatures at the time. A computer was used to get a precise camera path, and a special gantry system was constructed to keep the camera from casting a shadow over the model. All that for 31 seconds, said Jones in an interview. But what seconds? And I'm, they were so. The ending there, where you got to choose your own ending, is is so impactful that, like, as a kid going, because the last time I experienced Horizons was probably when I was nine, I 
think, give or take. But you know, you you bought into those those movie endings to it, where you mm-hmm. thought that like your experience was completely different, that your vehicle was going a different way than everyone else on the track. So like it, it just it was extremely effective, and I agree, it was it was one of the most enjoyable parts of that attraction by far. Oh, absolutely! I was mesmerized by it, and I remember Carol get frustrated with me because every time we went on the attraction. I always wanted to choose outer space because I'd grown up so much of the space system. She <laughs> said, let's try some of the other ones. And I, t- and, and I loved, so the undersea one was great, but I thought it was a little brief. But when I saw that desert scene, which I thought I wasn't going to enjoy, I was blown away by the detail and the length of it. I, it was just so superbly done. And then in reach, researching the show and reading about what went into it, I, I think out of the three, I now realize that was the most impressive. Yeah. I think of the three options. I, I would agree with that visually. Uh, now, it, it's not as exciting on paper, but <laughs> looking back at it, I think I think the desert sequence actually is the most visually impressive. But yeah, like as a kid, it was it was always between it's either outer space or undersea, and it was just between what my sister and I were fighting against. <laughs> <laughs> now, George Rester designed the building, which many guests believed looked like a spacecraft, whilst others thought it looked like a finely cut jewel, with its elaborate dramatic angles emphasizing its three dimensionality. As compared to many other Epcot Center pavilions, they were designed with a more flat silhouette-focused perspective, with the roof creating a distant horizon line in perspective. And this ambiguity in design was intentional, because Rester and the other designers wanted a structure that looked like nothing anyone would recognize, but would gear guests' minds toward visions of the future, because that was the subject of Horizons. The pavilion's enormous atrium would also provide enough room to construct something unique, an IMAX-created curved Omnimax dome screen, which had debuted less than a decade earlier in San Diego, and was tilted on its side to create an immersive projection surface. Was this your first Omnimax, or were you able to see an Omnimax anywhere else? No, this was my first one. And only? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. it, it, it was my first one until they started opening up, you know, up un, until, you know, they opened up in Sacramento. Yeah, it's because uh, that's like, well, I mean, obviously two different generations, but uh, at our Pittsburgh Science Center, we had an Omnimax. And so that's where we'd go for field trips and, and such growing up. So there's uh, there's a good chance that my first Omnimax was actually in Pittsburgh versus on Horizons. And uh, yeah, Omnimax is cool, cool technology. Right. Yeah, it was after it, when I started going on business trips, then and I would always go, you know, I'd always go a day early, stay a day late on my dime and um, see what the town had to yeah. offer. And I'd always go if they had a planetarium or a science theater, I would go and then I would see more Omnimax theaters, but Horizons is my first one. And in Sacramento, we have a real IMAX theater. So not the, you know, what they call IMAX in the smaller neighborhood theaters. IMAX light or Limax, as many people call them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so yeah, so it was very impressive. Bill Norton, Bob Kurzweil, and Claude Coates planned the initial version of the interior. And after reviewing the designs, Marty Sklar decided the attraction should be less dependent on film and more on audio animatronics, which is interesting because that's sort of a reverse of what we're seeing today (laughs) in some of the attractions. Um, George McGinnis was assigned as the project designer and with his team began to rework the design. He was also directed to cut nearly $10 million from the budget. And as a result, the show building was scaled back by 35%. Show scenes were shortened. The pre-show and post-show were minimized. And 600 feet of track was eliminated. 
So some of the things that were eliminated, originally the track round wound upwards through an animatronic heavy 50s scene depicting the future, then spiraled down in around three Omnimax screens and two complete circuits before exiting the theater and then climbing up into the future habitats. The 1950s section became a dark light retro scene and the track ascended in one swoop from the bottom to the top of the theater, which now consisted of a twin Omnimax screen. The transition to the undersea was also shortened. Instead of a continuous line of scenes, the same set was built to be seen from both sides, one from above water and one underwater. As the design of the show progressed, the Omnimax finale was moved to the center of the show, so a new finale was needed. A previous concept that transformed the ride vehicles into simulators was revisited, in which guests could choose one of four journeys back to Futureport. A maglev ride through Nova City, a Pegasus hover car flight through Mesa Verde, a space flight from Brava to Omega Centauri, or a solo submarine trip between two floating cities. And these are all locations guests had already traveled through, but the maglev option was cut. Before the finale, a projected recap of the ride was planned, but this was dropped so guests could concentrate on choosing their return journey to Futureport. The gold pavilion covered three acres. The interior of the two-story building allowed for 137,000 square feet of show space. It required 37,000 tons of steel to construct. This is what amazes me. That is more steel than spaceship Earth. Wow. Yeah. The pavilion rose 78 feet and continued down below ground level to support the large show scenes. The roof of the building was made of five-ply turn-coated steel. The show scenes would contain 30 human, 10 animal, and two robotic audio-animatronic figures, There were more than 700 props and 51 special effects spread amongst the 24 major sets. 11 large hand-painted murals for the backdrops contributed to the attraction's grand sense of scale and space. There were 15 special effects projections, and despite Marty Sklar's request to make the attraction less film-based, there were still 23 film and video projections. This is an incredible scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, artist Robert McCall painted what has become one of the most iconic pieces of artwork in the park's history: the prologue and promise, the prologue and the promise, a massive nineteen by sixty foot mural that was on display at the pavilion's exit area for a few years before being removed to make room for a new display that referenced General Electric. GE's 1983 promotional booklet for Horizons contained a brief article about Robert McCall, and it was titled The Man of Many Worlds, and it reads in part, The prologue in the promised mural, which adorns the exit of the Horizons Pavilion, is the work of Bob McCall, the science artist who has covered almost every NASA space launch, who speaks the language of the astronauts, who worked on the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, and collaborated with writer Isaac Asimov on the book Our World in Space. A man of many worlds, McCall spent close to 10 months planning and then painting the Horizons mural on the 19 by 60 foot canvas. It took about three months to develop the concept for the mural at my studio in Paradise Valley, Arizona, McCall says. The second phase, the actual painting, took more than six months. It was done at the Disney Studios in Burbank, California. With the help of my wife, Louise, a fine artist in her own right, I finished the mural in March. The prologue and the promise, according to the artist, represents the flow of civilized man from the past into the present and toward the future. A detailed painting that depicts most of the Earth's nationalities, cultures, and religions. It also depicts the McCall family. That's right, says McCall. My family is in the mural. If you look close enough, you'll see my daughters, Kathy and Linda, their husbands, and my four grandchildren, as well as Louise and myself. And oh yes, you'll also see Linda's pet dog. 
When working on a mural such as the one at the Horizons Pavilion, McCall starts with a sketch and then draws a 10-foot master, which he sections off into one-inch grids. Slides taken off each grid are then projected onto the mural canvas, allowing McCall to sketch a perfectly scaled final version. One of his murals, the Space Mural, A Cosmic View, is on display at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. It's nearly twice the size of the prologue and the promise. I've seen that one, too. Um, that's me, not not the writer. Um, <laughs> everyone, everyone should experience the thrill of learning about our universe, comments this man of many worlds. It gives us a sense of where we are where we're going. I'm convinced man's destiny lies in the stars. And do you recall this mural, Craig? Oh, yeah, I, uh, I I don't know what site hosts it, but a couple of years back, maybe a year or two ago, I, I found a, a high-resolution copy <laughs> of it to look at all the details in there. And it is just, it's so breathtaking. I mean, the, mm-hmm. it, it's everything you just described there. The transition from, from the pyramids through uh, ancient Greece all the way through, you know, uh, modern European architecture, the United States. And then it, it finalizes with this grand vista view of kind of like a, a lot of the, the artwork that you would see in the Tomorrowland movie, which I have mm-hmm. to assume was inspired partly by this mural as well, too. It's a lot more rigid instead of flowing, but still has that same feel to it. And yeah, it's just, um, it's just, it's a beautiful mural. I, 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 I don't have enough good words to say about it. Yeah. It's just, if you don't have a memory of it or you haven't seen it in a long time, look up a picture of it, try to find the most high quality one as possible. So you can see every single detail you, in there. You could, you could spend hours looking at it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I mean, it's cause There are so many details in it, you know, looking in the backgrounds and the mid grounds. I, it's magnificent, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it's it next week. Or the next installment, I will tell you where it is, and because it still exists. Oh, so. okay. Um, now Ned Landon advised the Imagineers on everything from pavilion lighting to what a kitchen of the future might look like. The attraction vehicles were an overhead omnimover, similar to the Haunted Mansion or Spaceship Earth, but suspended from the ceiling like Peter Pan's flight. The vehicles whisked along. 1,346 feet of track during a 15-minute dark ride experience and all faced one direction and traveled sideways. In case of evacuation, guests would exit the vehicles through a hatch in the backrest, then step onto a walkway behind the vehicles. The Omnimovers are made from Lexcan polycarbonate and operated with two GE motors and drive systems atop each vehicle. Each vehicle had an inbuilt speaker and the audio used digital recordings that were transmitted by infrared light to the ride vehicles where it was received and converted back to sound. Low frequency sonic transducers attached to the vehicles near the base of each rider's spine gave the full bodied feel of a concert hall performance. There were 174 vehicles, each holding four guests, along with one maintenance vehicle and 10 spare vehicles. The attraction's capacity was 2,660 guests per hour. The Choose Your Own ending used GE's Teleria light valve video projectors, and these video or TV projectors threw an image onto a rear projection screen. Computers ensured the image moved smoothly from each projector to follow the ride vehicles behind the screen. Seamless sequences of video clips would be seen tracking across the 50-foot-long GE-made Lexan screen. Seven projectors threw the rear projection image onto the Lexan screen. Around the projectors was a chain of 20 screen surrounds, traveling at the same speed as the ride vehicles. One frame would line up with each vehicle to block the image from the surrounding vehicles. A fold-out wall also blocked the view from the adjacent guests. This allowed the vehicles to be in complete isolation as they moved along their chosen journey. 
The show computer ensured the correct video followed the correct vehicle at the correct speed from projector to projector. This popular ending would not have been possible without all this GE technology. And my description of this doesn't do justice to how amazing this system was. Yeah. It, I mean, you explained it perfectly, but it's just still so unbelievable uh, in mm-hmm. how how well it worked and how how it just enwrapped you into what was happening in front of your eyes. This is where I, you know, again, when I research this kind of stuff, and I think, how did they come up with this? I mean, how did they come up with this concept and this system? You know, because this is so complex, to me anyway, not being a tech guy. And and maybe there's people sitting out there thinking elementary, you know, this is just so simple. But to me, it's, considering this is the 19, early 1980s, just seems so amazing. Yeah, that's I, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. The Gemlink, Gemlink video conference... A robot, amplifiers, and other GE technologies were also used in Horizons. A GE-made robot camera provided a live aerial view of the park to the pavilion's corporate lounge, since it was without windows. And GE powered the entire pavilion using customized GE motors specifically designed for the building. When Epcot Center opened to guests on October 1st, 1982, the steel framework for the Horizon Show Building was still under construction. Site preparation for the pavilion began on August 5th, 1981, and vertical construction began in January 1982. The entire project had a 21-month construction period. Now, originally, the pavilion was scheduled to be a part of Phase 1 of Epcot Center, but later joined the Living Seas and the Life Health Pavilion as part of Phase 2. Earlier in 1982, when construction was nearing completion for Epcot Center, Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom Club put out a publication titled Walt Disney World Epcot Center, and it was in color and over 50 pages long, and it was filled with concept art for the new attractions coming to Walt Disney World. The end of the Future World section featured a few pages devoted to Future World Phase 2, and it read, Opening in 1983, in Future World Phase 2, visitors will see a bright view of what's on our horizons in a show depicting family lifestyles in the 21st century. Before entering the future, guests see today's world as it's never been seen before. The incredible Omnisphere presents micro-worlds and macro-worlds of crystal formation and chains of DNA, as well as a fiery space shuttle blast-off and extraterrestrial locales on a colossal projected projection surface towering more than eight stories. On tomorrow's horizons, we'll find a 21st century habitat floating beneath the sea. Here, school children equip themselves with recirculation gills to prepare for a field trip to an undersea kelp farm. In a desert community, voice-controlled robots are seen harvesting genetically engineered crops. Guests will also visit space colonists who live within the interior of a rotating sphere, simulating the pull of gravity. To bring members of the family together from ocean, urban, desert, and space habitats, colonists use their holographic televiewer, one of tomorrow's many innovations for a better lifestyle. Before leaving the 21st century, we'll be able to choose our own tomorrow by simply pressing one of the buttons aboard the ride vehicle. Our probe into the future will culminate in a simulated ride through one of the environments we've just viewed. The opening ceremony for Horizons was a huge celebration. Attending were Walt Disney Production CEO Ron Miller, Dr. Schmidt from General Electric, Florida Lieutenant Governor Wayne Mixon and Walt Disney World Ambassador Cynthia Pleasant. The ceremony included much fanfare with trumpets and dancers and the release of homing pigeons and blue and silver balloons. 
Since it was October 1st, 1983, it was also the 12th anniversary of the opening of Walt Disney World, and cast members wore 12th anniversary buttons with the Horizon logo. In our next installment, we'll enter the pavilion and ride the attraction. We'll review its two closures and examine its legacy. But now it's time to take a ride on our virtual Omnimovers back to this week in Disney history. Well, here we are in the week of October 4th. I'm sort of going to keep our space theme going here, Craig. I'm completely okay with that. Okay. So an aeronautical engineer, test pilot, and NASA astronaut passed away at age 77 on October 4th, 2004. He contributed as a consultant to the Imagineers creating Space Mountain back in the 1970s and attended its opening at Disneyland in 1977. As a vice president of research and development for WED, he helped in the planning of Epcot Center. What is this NASA legend's name? Mm. I I don't think I know the answer to this. Yeah. It's Gordon Cooper. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and he was one of the original Mercury astronauts. Yeah. He was the first American to sleep in orbit. He flew the longest space flight of the Mercury project. And he was the last American to be launched alone into Earth, Earth orbit and conduct an entire solo orbital mission. Huh. Yeah, so strong ties to Disney. Oh, yeah. Okay. October 5th. Which Epcot Center Pavilion was officially dedicated on October 5th, 1982? This pavilion sponsor was the first company to sign with Disney to sponsor an Epcot Center Pavilion. I'm digging back to my uh, Epcot roots, and I think, if I'm correct on this, it would be World of Motion. That's right. I had to include this. We'll learn why. Um, yeah, Epcot Center's World of Motion, which was a whimsical look at the development of transportation from the human foot to the bustling futuristic city. It's officially dedicated, although it has been up and running since the park's grand debut on October 1st. It was sponsored by General Motors. Visitors boarding, um, visitors board moving Omnimover vehicles and are taken through scenes filled with audio animatronic animatronic figures and projection effects upon completion of the ride guests enter the trans center featuring educational attractions which include prototype cars such as the lean machine in the dreamers workshop and a film called the water engine and of course it will close in 1996 and it will be replaced by by test track so which was one of the attractions you worked on The only Disney attraction I worked at, and the good version, not the Tron version. (laughs) Okay. And you signed it, too. Didn't you tell us that once you signed the wall or something? Yep. I had uh, multiple places. I had – there was a dry erase board as you were moving from uh, where you went through the heat and the cold and then the the – bio you know spray little sprayers on the kook oh yeah i remember those yeah there was a little there was a room off to the right that had a dry erase board and my name was in there and then it was also my name was on a post-it note hanging on a desk that was uh right before you made your final turn to do the uh, crash test oh that's very cool well, who knows what happened? Somebody may have saved that whiteboard and it's nah, somewhere. You it's know. It, I. It's it either been thrown away or completely covered up. And I'm <laughs> sure some cast member after I was done working there probably erased my name and it's like, ugh, ugh, let's erase the past. <laughs> oh. Anyway, well, October 6th, although open since October 1st, what officially – what was officially dedicated the Magic Kingdom on October 6, 1971? I'll give you a clue. Singer Anita Bryant sang the Orange Bird song and Orange Tree during the ceremony. Uh, maybe the... I mean, maybe the Tiki Room? 
Well, that was part of it. Yeah. Walt Disney World's Sunshine Pavilion okay. was originally dedicated. And the governor of Florida, Ruben Askew, pressed a button on an orange to formally open the $3 million tropical serenade at the Sunshine Pavilion attraction. So, this was a week of a lot of openings at, at t- t- Walt Disney World. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, but we're into Halloween, so I have to have a Halloween uh, film in here. So, or Halloween themed, maybe. October 7th, an edited version of a live action Disney horror film starring Betty Davis, Carol Baker, David McCollum, and Lynn Holly Johnson is released on October 7th, 1981. Originally released in April 1980, the film is known for its notorious rewrites, reshoots, and recuts, including the film's original opening credits and conclusion after originally being pulled from theaters. What is the name of this film? I don't know. (laughs) Oh, really? That surprises me. The Watcher in the Woods. I've never seen it. I saw it when it was um, split up for uh, whatever you know wonderful world of disney or whatever was running at the time so it's based on the 1976 novel by florence engel randall the story focuses on a teenage girl and her little sister who became encompassed in a supernatural mystery regarding a missing girl in the woods surrounding their new home you have to you have to dig that that's exactly what i was gonna say i'm gonna have to try to track that one down yeah i can't remember if i have it on dvd all my DVDs are packed up right now. So. I do love a good Betty Davis movie. Me too. Me too. October 8th. This legendary Disney producer, writer, director, and narrator was born on October 8th, 1910 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He narrated many of Disney's live-action documentaries, produced the Disneyland television series, and made contributions to classic features, including Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, and Peter Pan. But His best-known written work may be Walt Disney's opening day Disneyland speech. What is his name? Hmm. I'm sure I'd recognize his voice in some of those documentaries, but I I don't know his name. You would recognize that Midwestern twang, Winston Hibbler. Yeah, I I would not have guessed that in a million years. (laughs) Yeah, and and he he narrated even some of the live-action films. Too that were that Disney did in that sort of sixties era. Yeah, yeah. So um okay, October 9th. Epcot closes at three o'clock PM on October 9th, 2003 for a special evening press event for the opening of a new attraction. What is its name? For two thousand three, I'm gonna say mission space. That's right. Of course I had to include that in here. We'll find out. In our next installment, why, if you don't already know, <laughs> Mission Space. The dedication is presided over by Walt Disney Company Chairman and CEO Michael Eisner, Hewlett-Packard CEO Carly Fiorina, and NASA President Sean O'Keefe. In attendance are legendary astronauts Buzz Aldrin, Jim Lovell, and Wally Schirra. The event also includes beamed-in remarks and well-wishes from Russian cosmonaut commander Yuri Malenchenko and NASA science officer Ed Liu, who are both aboard the International Space Station. And finally, on October 10th, legendary film director, actor, and writer Orson Welles passed away at age 70 in Los Angeles, California, on October 10th, 1985. What is his Disney connection? Hmm. I'm I my mind is going to that it has to be something movie related but nothing is nothing's popping out to me with that. This is this is obscure but it's an attraction it's a Tomorrowland attraction you really enjoyed in its day. Mr. Wells, at the time, was the voice of Eastern Airlines commercials, which was the official airline of Walt Disney World in the 1970s. And he was heard in the queue area of If You Had Wings, a Tomorrowland attraction in the Magic Kingdom originally sponsored by Eastern. 
Noted for his innovative dramatic productions, as well as his distinctive voice and personality, Wells is widely acknowledged as one of the most accomplished dramatic artists of the 20th century. But then he did commercials for that wine drink. What was it? It was sad. <laughs> oh, for like a one of the uh, whatever they are, the like Bartles and James or something like that. No, it wasn't quite it wasn't that bad. bad, but it was. It's still around, I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but, so yeah uh-huh. it's uh, Orson Welles. I I try to stick to just the highlights. I go I go with War of the Worlds and <laughs> oh, Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, Citizen Kane, and it's yeah, I, I leave it at that. I I don't. I don't get into the messiness of his life beyond beyond some oh, of the decisions he made uh, later it, on. It was Paul Masson, which at the time was not a highly regarded wine. It's in my, I don't even know about it, so I guess he didn't leave that much of a legacy with it. Yeah. yeah. He, he would say, we will sell no wine before it's time. <laughs> well, we all got to make a dollar, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, there you go. Great. Well, very nicely done. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I alluded to in this episode, when researching our series on Epcot Center, I am just so impressed by the amount of research that went into these pavilions to ensure their authenticity. You know, then followed by the technological advances that were needed to accomplish each pavilion story. Um, you know, it's just remarkable. Oh, the hundred percent, yes. Well, I referred to several books, articles, and a video during my research for this episode, including uh, the books Epcot's Explorers Encyclopedia, A Guide to Walt Disney World's Greatest Theme Park by R.A. Peterson. Uh, Walt Disney's Epcot Center, Creating the New World of Tomorrow with Text by Richard R. Beard. Articles on D23, Reaching for New Horizons. Theme Park Tourists, Horizons, Why Disney Demolished Epcot's Best Ever Attraction. AllEars.net, Horizon, It's 16 Years Journey by Mike Scopa. Uh, DisneyDocs.net, there, they have a number of documents there on Epcot. Intercot, their article on Horizons. Progress City USA, The Horizon Story. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the random shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network and then on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.